welcome to the Imposter Syndrome Files. I'm Kim Menninger, and I am so grateful that you are here. It's now been more than a year since I started this podcast, and I can't tell you how much I've learned and grown from the conversations that we've had here. As you may have heard me share, I have struggled with imposter syndrome and anxiety for much of my life, so this is a very personal journey for me. I do this podcast because I want us to share our stories with each other and to stop suffering in silence. Imposter syndrome is a pretty universal human experience and nothing we should be ashamed of. By listening to or supporting this podcast, you're helping me to advance my mission of destigmatizing this conversation and making it safe for everyone to be vulnerable and get the support they need. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to support this mission even further, please consider subscribing. And if you feel inclined to leave a five-star review, this really does help raise the visibility of the podcast so that others can find us. And please consider sharing with your friends. Lastly, if you have a story you'd like to share, connect with me anytime. I would be happy to interview you. Thanks again for being here. Welcome, Kat. I'm very excited to talk to you today. And before we jump in, I'd love to just learn a little bit more about you. Can you tell us about yourself? Sure. Um, Hi, Kim. And first of all, thank you so much for inviting me onto this podcast to talk about my imposter syndrome journey. Um, I am a data scientist uh, with a background in computational biology. I now work at Exponent, which is an engineering and life science consulting firm. And I have a keen interest in healthcare, so I typically write about more serious and consequential topics such as prescription drug affordability. However, I recently took a foray into children's book writing and self-published my first book, uh, Adventures of Pierre the Munchkin. I love that so much. And that just seems like such a contrast from data science and what you must be doing all day long, right? I can't wait to talk more about what inspired you and what that journey looked like. Before we jump into that, though, I want to ask you my standard questions of what does imposter syndrome mean to you and how, if at all, has it shown up in your life or in your work? Absolutely. So when I think about imposter syndrome, and I just learned about it, about the word, the term for it a couple of years ago. But to me, it means not giving yourself enough credit um, for accomplishing great things. So for example, when I earned my doctor of philosophy degree, Um, which, you know, is no small feat, but in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, oh, everybody in this field gets a PhD because, you know, I'm living in Massachusetts, which is a biotech hub. I'm surrounded by Ivy League schools. So to me, I meet so many people who have that higher degree who might even have a PhD MD. Uh, to me, it's like, oh, thanks, but I'm just joining the masses. It's no big deal. Um, and same thing when I'm writing a book, there have been so many people 
that A already write or because of the pandemic were inspired to write and found the time to as I did. And I feel like my book is in a sea of other books. Um, And that's when you have to step back and listen to your friends and family who are supporting you and saying, actually, you did something great that I could never do. And like, don't sell yourself short. So, yeah, that's so interesting that you describe it that way, too, because what you're making me think about is that when we are looking at something from a distance, right? Like if you're looking at getting a PhD from a distance, maybe you're still an undergrad or you haven't even gone through the process. It feels like this really daunting, big mountain to climb, right? But then certainly while you're in it, it's just, it's not easy, but the frame shifts, right? Now you're in a different group of people. Like you said, you're looking around, you're noticing all the PhDs and you're thinking, oh yeah, now that I'm here, it doesn't feel like as such a big deal as it might have from before. And I think that's because once we're in it, it doesn't feel special anymore, right? Like once we've gotten to that point and we've met the challenge or we have, uh, you know, found ourselves in that situation, we start to explain it away in the way that you're talking about, right? Because I think in some ways we've demystified it. And by demystifying it, we undermine its significance And so what you're talking about of really just accepting that, hey, you know what? No, I may be surrounded by PhDs because of the nature of the work I do and the program that I enter. But when you look at it as a percentage of people in the world, right? Like, no, I, right? Yeah. and, And you have to look at yourself through the eyes of the person who you were years ago. Um, when your path, your idea was not even on the horizon, um, and acknowledge what you've done um, and, and just step back instead of, okay, what's, what's, what's the next thing? What am I going to do next? Just take a step back and, and give yourself permission to, to, feel, to feel the accomplishment. Exactly. Exactly. I think that's such a great point that we often don't spend enough time doing either because in the hustle and bustle of everyday life, we're just so focused on what's next. What's the next thing on my list? What do I have to keep doing? Um, Or because again, we maybe just don't, we don't see it as special. We have a tendency to say, oh yeah, but that was a team effort or, oh yeah, but it's not such a big deal. And so then we're we're accomplishing all these amazing things and achieving all these goals and not marking them in any kind of a celebratory or meaningful way. And so it continues to leave us susceptible to the idea that I'm just a fraud, right? I don't really <laughs> Exactly. And I think as women, um, we tend to be more modest, uh, And I mean, it's good practice to give credit when credit is due, Um, but it's a fine line between saying, like you mentioned, uh, it's a team effort um, versus really standing up and and saying, well, I led the team, for example. Um, So before coming to Exponent, I was working at um, Bentley University. So I'm coming from academia and I was at a think tank there where had a publication that sort of put us on the map and I was the lead author on that study and we found that every single 
drug that was approved by the FDA uh, had received funding from the National Institutes of Health. And that opened up this conversation uh, leading to implications for uh, drug affordability. And if we as taxpayers are contributing funding that eventually leads to a drug, should we be seeing uh, a return on that investment in the form of uh, cheaper mod- uh, medications and something that we can afford? Uh, and that was definitely a team effort. Um, but as first author, you get cited as Cleary et al. And um, so in terms of citing that, that publication was referenced in congressional hearings. So Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez knew about it. The director of the NIH, Francis Collins, uh, knew about it. And that led me on a path where I joined uh, an organization called Prescription Allies that has a lot of patient advocacy groups. And I remember joining my first meeting and uh, the moderator who is part of Public Citizen introduced me and he said, well, we're joined today by you know, a very special person. This is the Cleary of Cleary and all that publication. And this is a Zoom meeting and the chat just went wild. And they're like, oh my God, that's you? Like you're that you know, petite girl that's behind this great work. Um, and someone, they, they, they re- re- literally said, oh my God, that's you. And, uh, and someone said, you know, you're famous around these parts. And so that, that obviously felt good, but you know, I also had to allow myself to, uh, to accept that praise. Um, and later on, it's funny, I was watching um, the Mockingjay movie that the part of the Hunger Games and looking at Katniss and how she inspires this um, revolution. And so I feel that maybe I'm the Mockingjay for people who are using this work to fight for drug affordability. And so um, it really makes me want to go on and and do great things. Wow. So can you say more about what, if anything, you had to do mentally to get to a place where you could internalize that and accept that, yeah, I'm that person, right? (laughs) I had to hear it many times. Um, and I had a boss that was very supportive that kept nominating me for awards. And I just kept finding opportunities to talk about my work. Um, but then something you had mentioned about self-promotion when we first met um, and writing down your achievements. And then, because I don't, I don't do journaling, I don't do reflection enough. So for me to put it down on paper, um, which eventually led to a newsletter. I mean, that that really puts it into perspective and solidifies it because you've written it down um, and you've screenshot your altmetric score, which is how many citations you get um, and, and all these different accolades that you can receive. And then little by little, you, you start gaining that confidence. 
which is a must because once you're out in the real world, you have to keep selling yourself. Just having a PhD on your resume wouldn't be enough. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting that you're you're mentioning these kinds of metrics, right? And metrics come in different shapes and sizes. I know a lot of people worry that their job isn't quantifiable, but it doesn't have to be quantifiable in traditional data ways, but just to be able to slice it in such a way that you can recognize the the efforts or the the outcomes that you've achieved. Exactly. And that external validation is so important to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And it's in, it's interesting because external validation is a big driver for people with imposter syndrome, but that that ability to internalize it is usually the missing piece. And so, you know, I love that you're talking about just actually listening to it, right? Like actually being with it for a while that can help to absorb it a little bit more effectively. Absolutely. So do you still, I mean, and we can shift gears a little bit too and talk about your book, like how does imposter syndrome show up for you now? Yeah, so the the children's book was a completely different journey for me. Uh, I, I don't have kids. Um, so this is something I wanted to do because I was inspired by um, my cat. And maybe as a fellow cat lover, you would appreciate that. Um, but I mean, it was several years in the making. And it wasn't until the world quieted down when everything was closed that I could be alone with my thoughts. And I just ended up rewriting everything that I had. And um, when I first started, I did not know the difference between self-publishing and traditional publishing, uh, which generally means that when you, when you traditionally publish, you have an, an agent or publishing house that picks up your work. Uh, and that would take some time because now that everybody's publishing, there's massive delays. So maybe six months. And then maybe you learn that um, you're not their cup of tea. So with that route, there's, there's many avenues for rejection. So between the agent and the publishing house, um, it could take a long time until you catch your break. And for me, I just wanted uh, to get the story out. So um, that's why I chose to self-publish. So um, writing everything down, finding an illustrator, um, physically getting my book out on the shelves. I mean, I hadn't even envisioned what that would look like which is important. You write it and then what needs to be in the store um, and formatting and things like that. Uh, And yeah, when I think about imposter syndrome, I mean, my book's been out for a couple months and it's not a bestseller. So does that mean that I have failed because I don't have thousands of copies sold? Um, But for me, I accomplished my goal of getting the story out uh, and doing something that I didn't envision doing. And for me, I know that that will open up a different path of me um, having that skill and maybe knowing a bit about marketing and things like that. So I, I know that it was not for nothing. 
Did you have to consciously define success in your mind like before you embarked on this journey? Or was that something that you came back to as you were going through it or as you, you know, as you finished the book and started putting it out there? I was definitely going through it. Um, because once you join a community of fellow authors, people talk about marketing 90% of the time. They say that writing is the easy part and the rest is getting your book out there. Um, so for me, you know, maybe my current goal is sell 100 books in 100 days. Um, but then I have to remind myself that at one point, you have to step back and just appreciate what you've done because you can spend so much time on marketing and it might be frustrating if you see, if you don't see return on that time you've spent um, and you don't want to get to the point where you're um, belittling your, your accomplishment. Now, I'm also curious because you mentioned the community. Do you did you feel pressure, like peer pressure in any way? Were you finding yourself comparing yourself to other people or using uh, those kinds of measures to measure your own success? Uh, you do inadvertently um, because you have people who do this as a full time job, and they'll say, "Oh, I sold." 40,000 copies and um, they're also trying to be helpful. You know, they're saying, okay, you need to do this, um, do a vendor fair, print out placemats, do author signings, um, which are hard to do in a pandemic um, because even though we're coming off of it, a lot of places are still shy about doing author signings. Um, so yeah, so your, your mindset tends to shift into seeing what other people are doing and try to try to match that, um, which isn't always possible when you have a full-time job. Yeah, exactly. Right. That could be a full-time job in and of itself. Um, you and I were talking a little bit before we hit record, right, about the feedback piece. And I want to hear you say a little bit more about that because I know that's got to be challenging from a confidence perspective too. <laughs> Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, you have something that you're, you're pouring your heart into and, uh, you're opening yourself up to the world and, and back to doing a little marketing, you post on groups about, about your book. Um, and so something that happened to me when I posted on a group is that someone downloaded a, a free version of my book on Amazon that was, um, available as a promotion. And they left a two-star review on the book um, because their child didn't find it interesting and because the uh, illustrations were quote-unquote weird. Um, and so, so to give a little context, I'm using photographs of, of my book um, where the protagonist is, is Pierre. He's an indoor-outdoor cat and he goes on these adventures and he meets different animals. And I don't know what he does when he's out there. So I imagined who he meets and how he learns different skills from them. Um, like uh, the owl 
um, tells Pierre that it's impolite to stare. Um, and so, and this comes from us actually encountering animals together, like we saw a deer once near our home on a walk and, and it was majestic. And so I turned that into um, a whimsical tale of, a, of the secret outdoor life. Um, and I mean, this person thought there was nothing whimsical about it and it, it just wasn't her cup of tea. Uh, and that, that kind of um, was disheartening. It, it took the wind out of my sails because um, this, is, this book is based on true events. And so at the end, I make it clear that um, while I was writing the book, um, the cat Pierre didn't come back from his walk. So here I have someone that totally didn't get it. Mm. And so I fixated on that for a couple of days. Um, what I did is I went to fellow indie authors, Amazon pages and uh, famous authors, Goodreads pages. And Goodreads is a social media platform for books. And I would scroll down to the one-star reviews and I would read what people wrote. <laughs> and I'd convince myself that that's part of the process. Um, so someone wrote, again, that this author's fellow indie author's book was uninteresting. But in the title, this, this random person wrote that she must have been asleep or drunk when she purchased the book. And I thought that was so horrible mm. that people don't appreciate how much effort goes into it. Even if you're traditional publishing, it consumes your life and you put this out there and, and it takes one minute for someone to just shoot it down. Um, like all your effort. So, yeah, but then, you know, even Stephen King gets bad reviews. That's a so, yeah. That's a great way to think about it. And I think, you know, the, the truth is that if you don't, in order to have people who really love it, you have to have people who really hate it, right? If you're trying to please everybody, you water it down and then it becomes meh for every, everybody, right? So I think it is important to recognize that not everybody, I like how you say it's, you're not, it's not going to be everybody's cup of tea, right? And that's okay. But I really believe that that fear of that one or two star review, that fear of that comment metaphorically, right? Because it could be, I'm not going to speak up in this meeting in case somebody says something nasty or, you know, we live in a world where people are rude. People are just, we, you know, we were talking about that. People just don't have manners anymore. That fear is that what I think keeps a lot of people from playing big, from really realizing their dreams, from taking risks, right? Because that sense of, oh no, I don't want that, whatever that bad review is in their world, right? So did you think about that beforehand or did you, what, was that part of the, the, the way that you were thinking about making this uh, entrance into the world in this new way or did that come up later? Uh, it, it definitely came up later and, and a lot of people get critiques. You just have to learn how to parse out uh, the useful information and, and take something from it that you can change. Um, if, if you wish to, maybe the next time around. 
Um, but certainly opening yourself up to the internet of things um, puts you in a vulnerable situation. Um, and for me, one of the challenges was embracing the unknown. I had no idea what was going to come out of this, what um, the amount of effort and research that would go into it. But um, the unknown is an old friend of mine. Uh, we go way back. <laughs> so, I mean, back to, you know, my immigration story of changing schools in different countries and learning a new language, um, which I did twice. And the second time was my own free will. Um, but you don't know what's going to meet you ahead. And you just have to embrace it. And once you're riding the wave, um, just got to write it to the end. Yeah, I think I think that's such a great way to think about it too, uh, connecting it to experiences you've already had, instead of feeling like this is one brand new, entirely brand new experience that you're not comfortable with, right? It's like the unknown is familiar territory. Absolutely. And I think a lot of people will face that um, and there are, there will be setbacks just like for me, not meeting my deadline, um, which was, you know, Pierre's birthday or having formatting issues. And that takes up a lot of mind space, just like seeing um, those bad reviews that take the wind out of your sails. Um, I obsessed about that for days. And then the review disappeared because Amazon flagged it. And so, but I had already reached out to so many people for support (laughs) and it's important to have a support group, your family, friends, your tribe of people who are going through the same things, because there will be strangers out there who will take the time to to hold your hand and to guide you and pat pat you, rub your back (laughs) uh, metaphorically and say, I've been there. You'll get through this. Wow. That really does make it, you know, like I said, people have lost their manners on social media and it's really hard to see people argue over just the simplest little things and the feedback people give. But that counterbalance that you're describing of of strangers supporting one another is definitely really inspiring. And I think that if we're going to choose how we spend our, our, or focus our attention, that's a good place to put it. Absolutely. Is there anything else that you would share in terms of advice for people who are, you know, going in a new direction, who are worried about taking that risk and what might happen? Absolutely. Um, I mean, my first piece of advice would be to not hesitate to ask for help um, because there, there are people who enjoy giving advice. Um, or if you feel like you're up against something and you need to delegate, um, for example, my book is based on photographs of, of Pierre and different animals. And so I outsourced the Photoshopping skills of putting the animals together with scenes of New England, um, to someone who had the time who could do this quickly. Um, and she's in Pakistan. And so we helped each other. Um, and you do have to keep going um, because it'll be worth it the, at the end. 
And as you're going through this and as you're reaching the end and maybe you've, you've done what you've set out to do, uh, my best piece of advice would be to give yourself permission to celebrate your accomplishment in the ways that your support group celebrates you. So look at yourself through their eyes and allow yourself to celebrate you and that you've made it, you've done this. Um, and just take a step back before you dive into the next thing. Mm. Yeah, and and so knowing what you know now, everything that you went through, would you do it again? That's a good question. Um, because I do have an idea for another book. Um, And this book uh, focuses on a different cat. Um, I think my, I think my book books might all focus on cats. Um, (laughs) But this one in particular is one we adopted that has ended up um, having a disability. So um, this cat, he's, He's one year old, um, but he has um, cerebellar hypoplasia. So that's uh, uh, also called wobbly cat syndrome. It's an underdevelopment of his brain. um, And he has a mild case of it, but he still has to um, have a very wide stance when he walks to balance. (laughs) And so it's hard for him to jump. Like he's a cat who can't jump. Um, who kind of puts one foot in front of the other and falls. And so um, my next book, I want to write it for for kids with special needs and disabilities and kind of have this cat, Sonny, um, get past his inability and in that way um, support someone who might be going through the same thing. Um, And this is something that I'm hoping... Um, not that I didn't want Pierre's story to be shared. I do, but I want um, more people to see it. Um, And so I'd want to try to traditionally publish. Mm. Wow. I love that. I love the, the intersection between something that's obviously very meaningful to you and something that would be really inspiring to a lot of other people too. That's great. Absolutely. So what would you say you, as we wrap up today, you are hoping that people will take away from our conversation? Well, I hope that people will be inspired to brace the unknown in their life, whatever that may be. I hope that people will take the risk um, and risk taking is hard. I mean, I could have quit my job to do this, um, but you know, to me, I had a small risk of, of time investment ahead of me. And I had um, the opportunity when the world quieted down to, to embark on my journey. So, if our viewers can find the opportunity and take it and pursue it, um, that I hope they will. And I hope that at the end, they'll have a little launch party for themselves 
and uh, and make sure they they invite their biggest fans, um, their family, and uh, and not to focus too much on the roadblocks and the setbacks because you won't remember that. Mm. Um, when I held uh, my my author copy in my in my hand for the first time. I did not remember how I forgot, you know, a period. <laughs> um, I was just, you know, overwhelmed and excited. I love that, Kat. Thank you so much for sharing your story, for giving us all of these great insights. And it's really inspiring. I hope you do write that next book. I think it's something that a lot of people would benefit from reading. So thank you again. Uh, thank you very much. And I really appreciate um, the work that you've done and the different perspectives that you're able to get on the show. So thank you. Keep and going. <laughs> thank you. I, I'm going to keep going as long as people listen. So thank you. And, <laughs> and if you are anyone listening interested in Kat's book or learning more about Kat, you can definitely check out the show, new, show notes for additional information. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like to stay connected, please join the Leading Women Discussion Group, which meets every Thursday at 12 p.m. Eastern. This is a place where women come together to discuss questions or challenges related to leadership development and career management. It's a great place to learn from, support, and connect with other women on similar journeys. In addition to the weekly calls, we also have a Facebook group and a Slack channel where we stay connected and support each other please join us there too. You can check out the show notes for the links. Before we wrap up, if you like this podcast, I would love to share another podcast with you that I know you will enjoy. Do you ever find yourself playing small? Do you want to take risks, but in the end, you end up taking the safe route? Does your inner critic keep you from reaching your full potential? As counterintuitive as it often feels, we don't become confident first and then take action. It's through our actions that we build our confidence. That's why one of the greatest ways to manage imposter syndrome is by taking brave and bold action. If you want inspiration and insights to help you to take action and to be brave at work, then my friend and colleague, Jen Pastikas's Brave Women at Work podcast is for you. Jen and I met when we interviewed each other for our podcasts, and I knew instantly that Jen and I shared a similar worldview and a commitment to empowering women to be our best selves. On her podcast, Jen digs into common challenges such as perfectionism, boundary setting, and burnout, all to empower us to shift our mindsets and play bigger in the workplace. You can find the Brave Women at Work podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Visit the show notes for the relevant links. Thanks again, and please stay in touch.